Amen. This morning, we're continuing with our sermon series through the book of Joshua. Our text for today is going to be Joshua chapter 10, verses 1 through 15. I'm going to read the first five verses, Joshua 10, verses 1 through 5, from the outset, and I'm going to allow that to be the particular verses that we stand in order to show reverence to the Word of God as He's revealed Himself. So would you join me in standing now? I'll read these first five verses, and then as we work through the sermon, we'll deal with the remainder of the text, verses 6 through 15. So the text that I'll be reading right here from the outset again is Joshua chapter 10, verses 1 through 5. When I finish reading the text, I'll say this is the word of the Lord, at which point I would appreciate very much if you would respond by saying, thanks be to God. One final time, Joshua 10, 1 through 5, the Bible says this, As soon as Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard how Joshua had captured Ai and had devoted it to destruction, doing to Ai and its king as he had done to Jericho and its king, and how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were among them, he feared greatly, because Gibeon was a great city, like one of the royal cities, and because it was greater than Ai, and all its men were warriors. So Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, sent to Hoam, king of Hebron, to Piram, king of Jarmuth, to Jephi, king of Lachish, and to Deber, king of Eglon, saying, Come up to me and help me, and let us strike Gibeon, for it has made peace with Joshua and with the people of Israel. Then the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon, gathered their forces and went up with all their armies and encamped against Gibeon, and made war against it. This is the word of the Lord. All right, please be seated. From the outset, I want to utilize a quote from Matthew Henry, the late great Puritan. In commentating on these first five verses of our text, he says the following, When sinners leave the service of Satan and the friendship of the world, that they make peace with God and join Israel, they must not marvel if the world hate them, if their former friends become foes. By such methods, Satan discourages many who are convinced of their danger and almost persuaded to be Christians, but fear the cross. These things should quicken us to ask God for protection, help, and deliverance. What we see happening in the outset of our text today is that Gibeon, for those of you who were not with us last week as we focused on Joshua chapter 9, Gibeon, a particular Amorite tribe, Canaanite tribe, made and made, uh, came and made a peace treaty, a covenant with Joshua and Israel. And they did this in faith. They had heard of what Joshua and Israel had done to Jericho, what they had done to Ai, another tribe, Canaanite tribe, and what they had done to previous kings underneath the leadership of Moses as they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. They had also heard uh, the rumors and the stories of what had taken place in Egypt and how God had delivered Israel with a mighty hand, sending 10 plagues on the Egyptians. And so Gibeon, this particular tribe, realized that there was no victory to be had against God's people, Israel. That if they tried to come up against Israel, they ultimately would be picking a fight with God. They would be opposing Yahweh, the God of Israel, and they would be utterly destroyed. And so they recognized that their only hope of salvation, their only hope of being spared, was to go and make a treaty, peace, a covenant, with Israel. Now they did this underneath a pretense. They went to Israel, although they were actually, Gibeon was a tribe uh, geographically located in the land of Canaan that God had determined to give to Israel as an inheritance. And Gibeon knew this, even though they lived there and were local, they were nearby Israel. They pretended as though they were actually located in a far-off distant land. And so what we saw in chapter 9 last week is that the Gibeonites took, um, they took sacks of food and water and 
wine and they uh, battered these, these uh, articles of, of their own clothing and their footwear and sandals and the sacks that they used to hold their victuals and all these different things to make it seem as though they had just finished a very long journey to come and see Israel. They even took with them uh, bread that had already gone stale and food that had already been spoiled to make it seem, appear physically, again, as though they had come from a very great distance. And so they told Israel when they came to Israel, we are from a far off place and we have heard the great tales of what your God has done through you and giving you victory over all these various tribes. And so we are asking that you would make a covenant with us and that you would commit to be at peace with us and that you would not make war against us. And the Bible says in Joshua chapter 9 that Joshua and the elders and rulers in Israel did not seek counsel from the Lord. And so what they did instead, unfortunately, is that they made a rash commitment. They made a vow. They vowed with uh, Gibeon not to put them to death, not to make war against them, but rather to do them no harm and to live at peace with them. They made a vow. They made a covenant. And so we spent lots of time talking about the biblical premise for vows, the biblical premise for covenants. And so Joshua and Israel entered into a covenant with Gibeon. And when they realized, the Bible says three days later, that the Gibeonites were actually their next door neighbors and that they had lied and had not actually come from a far off distant land, but were inhabitants of the land of Canaan, the very land that God had promised to give Israel as an inheritance, the very land that God commanded Israel to drive out all these pagan Canaanite tribes. When Israel realized that, uh uh-oh, we've just made a peace treaty with a particular tribe of people that God has told us to uh, to drive out, they couldn't go back on their word. Joshua and Israel and the leaders there realized that even though they were supposed to initially in obedience, full obedience to God's commandments to drive the Gibeonites along with all these other tribes out of Canaan, they had given their word, they had made a treaty, a covenant, and to break their word would actually be a greater sin. And then hundreds of years later, we see the power of a covenant. We see how binding our word actually is, how serious an endeavor it is to make a vow before the Lord. We see hundreds of years later, generations past King Saul, the first Saul in, uh, the first king in Israel, King Saul in his zeal for the house of the Lord and for the people of Israel, his zeal overstepping his bounds of wisdom and maturity, he starts to put to death the Gibeonites. And what happens as way of consequence is that there are three years of severe famine and drought in the land of Israel. And now David comes into the kingship, the throne, succeeding Saul. And David goes before the Lord because Israel is suffering in this intense famine and drought. And he goes to the Lord and says, God, what, what's going on? Uh, surely we must, we must be in sin. This is not just uh, natural. We recognize that there is a supernatural cause behind this famine. And ultimately, you're sovereign over all things. This wouldn't be happening if you didn't allow it. Is Israel in sin? Have we breached a covenant with you? And the Lord answers David and says, yeah, Saul did this. When he was king as a representative head of Israel, with his authority, he breached the covenant that was made generations earlier through Joshua. He breached the covenant. He broke his word. He broke Israel's vow with the Gibeonites. And in his zeal, he began to put them to death. And David says, well, how do we make it right? And God sends David to the Gibeonites to say, go to them. You need to make it right and seek reconciliation and restoration with the Gibeonites, the ones who Israel has offended. And the Gibeonites say that in order to make it right, uh, blood for blood, tooth for tooth, eye for eye, life for life, that the sons of the lineage of Saul must be put to death. Now David spares Mephibosheth, 
who is a son, grandson of King Saul, but a son actually of Jonathan because of a covenant that David made with Jonathan. So he can't make this other covenant that Saul broke with the Gibeonites right by breaking another covenant that David made with Jonathan. So he spares Mephibosheth and the Lord allows for this, but he puts other sons um, of King Saul and grandsons in his lineage, hands them over to the Gibeonites and they put them to death. And all of a sudden the famine ceases and God causes it to rain on Israel again. There's food in Israel, things are made right. But the point is to say uh, that is just one example in biblical terms of the power of our word, the power of a covenant. And I don't mean the power of our word uh, in a prosperity gospel heretical sense. I'm not talking about the power of positivity or manifesting or just you know, wishing something into existence, faith in your faith, name it and claim it. It's none of that. But what I am saying is that when we make a vow before the Lord, he will hold us accountable. And that's why Jesus even says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Do not make a vow at all. And we talked about that and said, well, okay, Jesus says no vows at all. So for us now as New Testament Christians in this gospel age since Christ and his life, death, and resurrection, should we not make any vows? And we looked at even the teachings of Luther and John Calvin, who both agreed that you could make vows. When you make a vow, the kind of swearing that Jesus utterly condemns is swearing by anything other than swearing upon the Lord, right? Swearing on the temple. And then, you know, really, you know, the, the religious rulers of Jesus' day, it was like they were giving their word with their fingers crossed behind their back, trying to escape their promises, escape their vows. So they would say, oh, well, I swore by the temple, but you're not actually bound by your oath unless you swear by the gold of the temple. Or, oh, I swear, swore by the altar, uh, but you're not really bound by your word unless you swear by the sacrifice that is laid upon the altar. You know, and and this is just what the Pharisees and Sadducees and religious rulers of Jesus' day were doing. They were constantly taking the commandments of God and they were meticulously twisting them and making them, well, it's, it's like the IRS in our day, right? If, if you want to oppress people and you want to, to find a way to basically hold others bound, but you not be bound yourself, what you do is, is you just extrapolate, right? You, you have a certain law code that's, you know, 1,500 pages long. Uh, G.K. Chesterton once famously said, if man will not have 10 commandments, he will have 10,000 commandments. And that's what the religious rulers of Jesus' day were doing. And that's what rulers and tyrants continue to do in our day as well, is they take simplicity that God speaks to us in, in his word. They extrapolate it out. They, uh, they uh, add immense uh, overburdening complexity to the word of God to where essentially everyone is now bound by God's law and cannot escape it except for them. They know the tricks of the trade. They know, uh, they know the cheat codes. They, they know the hacks. You know, so everyone else now is making vows and bound to their word, but the Pharisees have their neat little trick of, oh, well, we make oaths too, but we have the fingers crossed behind our back tactic. So you have to keep your word, but we never actually do. That's the kind of swearing and oath-taking that Jesus expressly and utterly condemns in the New Testament. So Luther and Calvin, back to them, what they said is that among Christians, we should be able to simply let our yes be yes and our no be no. But in a public sense with unbelievers, there is room to make a vow. And one of the texts that they would cite is that Jesus himself undertook an oath and made a vow uh, when the religious Sadducees, which is, would be equivalent to not just religious rulers, but they were also a legal court for Jerusalem and for uh, Israel, they, they would be kind of the equivalent of a religious supreme court in Israel during that day. They actually call, the high priest calls upon Jesus and he invokes the name of God. He's invoking an oath and Jesus answers him. He doesn't say, well, I, I won't do that because, because we don't do oaths anymore. Jesus undergoes by answering the high priest in this, this uh, the Sadducees, the, the supreme religious court in Israel, Jesus, uh, he subjects himself to the oath that's being made. God also uh, makes oaths himself. God, that is God the Father. 
uh, that when he makes an oath with Abraham, having no one greater to swear by other than himself, he swore in his own name and made an oath. Uh, the apostle Paul makes oaths. We see this at least three times in the letters of Paul, usually at the outset of the letter, as he's talking to his immediate audience saying, I care for you, I love you, trying to persuade them that he's not just trying to exert um, this, this ridiculous authoritarian um, domineering power over them, but that he actually has godly concern and affection for the people he's writing to, he will say things like this. I call God as my witness that I have remembered you daily in my prayers, that I have, uh, have deep affection, but that is an oath. He's calling God, invoking the name of God, saying, I promise you, I swear. So the apostle Paul swears, Jesus undergoes an oath. God himself makes an oath on him, his own name because there's no one greater to swear by. So oath-making in a legal court, if, if you have to give testimony, oath-taking or perhaps in the military in order to join as a service member or to be sworn in in, in a political or civil office. These are things that Christians, I believe, can do. And there's a great hi history of Solid theologians saying it is permissible for Christians to serve in these roles. And as they do, inevitably, they will have to undergo an oath. When they do undergo an oath, they should only swear by the name of God. Uh, so they should not make an oath on, on anything else. Do you swear by your mother or do you, you know? No, they only would invoke the name of God. And it should only be in the context of public oaths in society at large, which encompasses unbelievers, but among Christians, we should simply be able to say yes, and it means yes, no, and it means no, because ultimately, and I kind of landed the plane last week as it pertains to parenting at a practical level, uh, parenting would be a great example if your children are, are regularly and consistently asking you as a father or a mother to promise, you promise that, you promise what your children are essentially saying is they're indicting you as a liar. They're saying dad's word can't be trusted. So I need to get a promise out of him. Mom's word isn't consistent. Her yes doesn't always mean yes. Her no doesn't always be no, uh, mean no. So I need to invoke some kind of covenant, some kind of promise, some kind of oath out of my own Christian parents because I cannot depend upon them to keep their word. That's what Jesus is combating. Jesus is combating the finger crossing behind the back. He's also combating swearing by anything other than God alone, who is the source of the temple and the sacrifice and the altar and gold and this. And so if there is a swear, an oath at all, it should only be in the name of the triune God. And when it's done, it should not be tricky and overly complex trying to escape your word. And it should only be done when absolutely necessary, when the people you're making an oath with will not merely accept a yes or a no, because for the most part, it's in a public society-wide context with unbelievers who do not trust us. That all being said, among Christians in a local church and certainly in our households, in our marriage, in our parenting, we should be men and women of our word where promises and oaths are not necessary to invoke because when we say yes, it means yes. When we say no, it means no. All that back to Gibeon and Israel now. Israel through Joshua and the elders in Israel made a covenant with the Gibeonites. It was made under a false pretense. The Gibeonites lied to Israel. They said, we came from a long distance. We're not actually inhabitants of this land that God has promised to give to you as an inheritance. So there's deception. And yet here's the deal. The oath still stands. And not only does it stand for Joshua for the next 15 minutes, for Joshua and Israel and their generation or for the next couple of years, it stands so strong and so perpetually that generations later with King Saul, when that oath is broken and he begins to do harm to the Gibeonites, God brings consequences on the whole nation of Israel for three years. That's how serious a covenant is. That's how serious a vow or an oath is. Now, that brings us, gives us the framework and the context for our text today, Joshua 10, verses one through five, starting there, but we'll also look at verses six through 15. Here's the deal. 
The other Amorite tribes and their kings have now gotten word that Gibeon has made a pact with Israel and they are greatly afraid is what our text says. Look at verse two. He feared, and I believe this is the king of Jerusalem. Yes, this is the king of Jerusalem, one of these Amorite kings. He feared greatly when he heard about this covenant between Israel and Gibeon because, why? Because Gibeon was not a weak city. Gibeon was not a small, pathetic tribe. He feared greatly because Gibeon went out of its way under false pretense to make a covenant with Israel despite the fact that Gibeon was a great city, like one of the royal cities, and because it was even greater than Ai. Ai is the most recent conquered Canaanite tribe that Joshua and Israel had just conquered. And now Gibeon, they're not smaller than Ai. So they're not looking and saying, well, God gave them victory over Ai, uh, but, but you know we're even smaller than Ai, so we better make peace while it can be made because it's our only hope. No, Gibeon is much superior to Ai. They're much stronger. And yet they still look at this and look at the trajectory and the history of God's mighty hand with Israel against all their enemies. And they say, the only hope we have is to make peace with Israel. So these other kings, including the king of Jerusalem, fear greatly because Gibeon is not some small, pathetic city, but a great city like the royal cities, even greater than Ai, and all its men were warriors. That's Joshua 10, verse 2. So this Jerusalem king, he goes to four other kings now and says, our only hope, if we're going to to take out Gibeon and Israel, now it's both of them, if we're going to have any chance at victory whatsoever, our only hope is to unite. And so five kings, right? It makes me think of, you know, the Hobbit, you know, and the, the five, five kings, you know, going to uh, the, the mountains, you know, to go up against, uh, you know, the, the dwarves who are holed up in the walls with all the treasure after smog leaves and you have the battle of the five kingdoms. But that, that's what's going on is you have five kings, but not fighting against one another, but united now in order to go up against Israel. But first, in a practical sense, they're first going to go up against Gibeah in a, in a retributive uh, kind of way, say, of, of, in vengeance, saying, Gibeah, you, you're a traitor. You sold us out and we're going to come up against you. So not just one kingdom, not just one city or one tribe, but you have five different kings now who have decided not even to make war with Israel. Not yet. They'll get there. But all we have from the outset going on is five different Amorite tribes in Canaan united. So a massive force. It's not small. This would be the greatest enemy that Israel would face yet. This is like Jericho times five. And so you've got five kingdoms united and their only intent is not to go up against Joshua and Israel, but they go and encamp at Gideon to make war against them, Gibeon. And this is just a few days, again, to paint the picture here, just a few days into this covenant that Israel made with Gibeon. And again, a covenant that Israel only made with Gibeon because Gibeon lied to Israel. Here's the point. What would you be tempted to do if you were Joshua? I would be tempted just to let Gibeon die. I'm not going to go and fight five different armies all united at once that aren't even coming against me in this moment, but are coming against you. And we've been friends for 72 hours and we're not even really friends. I'd actually kill you myself if I could, but you lied to me and got me to, to, to pledge peace to you indefinitely. And this way, I'm actually not coming against you. I'm not breaking my vow, right? You could get really tricky here. I'm not coming against you. I'm not breaking the vow that I made with you to be at peace with you. I'm just gonna let somebody else do my dirty work and actually alleviate me from this vow that I made rashly because you were deceitful. It almost, you could almost hear this as good news if you were Joshua. Oh, good, man, we just made this hasty vow. We should have sought counsel from the Lord. We didn't, that's on us. That was our fault. But Gibeon lied to us. That's the only reason we did it in the first place. And now, I mean, you could work this into 
saying, well, in God's providence, he's actually uh, freeing us from a rashly made vow with Gibeon by sending these other armies against them to wipe them out. That would be a, a really natural and reasonable assessment. But that's not what happens. Instead, what happens is that Joshua and Israel mount up all their fighting men to come to the defense of a group they've had a covenant with for only a matter of days and a group that the covenant with them only exists because they lied in the first place. Verses six and seven. And the men of Gibeon sent to Joshua at the camp in Gilgal saying, do not relax your hand from your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us. Help us. For all the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the hill country are gathered against us. So Joshua went up from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him, and all the mighty men of valor. In commentating on these two verses, namely verse 6 and 7 of our text today, again, the late great Puritan Matthew Henry says the following, The meanest, that is the smallest, weakest, and most feeble, who have just begun to trust the Lord, are as much entitled to be protected as those who have long and faithfully been his servants. It is our duty to defend the afflicted, who, like the Gibeonites, are brought into trouble on our account or for the sake of the gospel. Joshua would not forsake his new vassals. How much less shall our true Joshua fail those who trust in him? If I were to boil down the entirety of the sermon today in these first 15 verses of Joshua chapter 10 to one point, it would be this. That whether you've been following Jesus for 50 years or for five minutes, if you have been truly born again by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, trusting in him, you don't get his partial protection. From the moment that you trust in Christ, you do not garnish for yourself his partial power, his partial defense, a piece of his commitment, some of his allegiance, a portion of his affection, but rather the moment you come into covenant, not merely with an earthly Joshua, but with the true antitype, the substance of who Joshua represents, Yeshua, the true and eternal and salvific deliverer, Jesus Christ, the Son of God himself. When a man enters covenant with Jesus, he immediately, from the moment of his justification, garnishes for himself the full might, the full power, the full protection, the full defense of Jesus Christ. And the first the first enemy that Jesus runs with all his might, with all his righteousness, with all his power to defend us from eternally is the righteous, just wrath of God. Our greatest enemy from the moment of being conceived in the womb is not our fellow man, but a thrice holy God that apart from saving faith in Jesus, apart from justification, that is God declaring us righteous through faith, not works on the basis of Jesus' perfect obedience and not our own. Apart from that, apart from conversion, apart from justification, from the moment that you're physically conceived in your mother's womb, your greatest cosmic eternal enemy is God, not man. The greatest problem that any of us have is that God is holy and that we are sinners. But Jesus, the better Joshua, comes to our defense. We don't merely have five different armies surrounding us, ready to make war. We have the creator of the universe with his just, not unjust, not unfair, but perfectly fair, merited, just wrath against us for crimes we truly committed. And Jesus, Yeshua, 
God's own son comes and he becomes our defense in the court of heaven. And the defense that he offers on our behalf for the record is not, hey, you're being too harsh, God. They're not really that bad, God. No, as all the charges are read against us, as it were, as all the charges are read against us, Jesus, the great defense, his reply is, "Uh uh-huh, that's true. All of it. And he does not enter on our behalf a plea of not guilty. He doesn't say, no, no, they didn't do the crime. They're innocent. They're not actually guilty. On the contrary, he enters for us as our defense, a guilty plea. Everything that you've charged them with is true. And in fact, we could go on. They have committed cosmic treason against you. They are vile. They are wicked. Sinister. Malicious. No one seeks for God. No, not one. Their throats are open graves. They lie in wait for blood. They are heartless, ruthless, and they are most certainly guilty of every crime for which they have been charged. And the defense that I now plead on their behalf is not that they have somehow not committed the crimes. It is not that they are somehow innocent in regards to the charges, but rather the plea that I enter on their behalf is this. They are guilty and it is paid in full. They are guilty but it has been paid in full. Everything that they accrued and earned for themselves, every penalty, every consequence, I have taken upon myself. The wages of sin is death, and I have died that death under the just wrath of God in their place. As a substitute, as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The first thing that I I couldn't help but think of as I was reading the text and preparing to preach this Lord's Day is about Jesus. Here's Joshua, and if I were him, I would be very tempted to let Gibeon go. They would send messengers to me and say, come and defend us. Wait, come and defend you? Didn't you lie to me just a few days ago? Didn't you trick me? I'm not going to come and defend you. But that's not the way that Jesus engages us. We've all lied. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And whether we've been walking faithfully with Christ for five minutes or 50 years. When you get Christ, you get all of Christ. All his devotion, all his protection, all his commitment, everything. And the first thing that Jesus saves us from is actually the wrath of the triune God. But secondly, beyond that point, It is also true that God spares the righteous not only from God's just wrath against us by Christ atoning for our sin and his righteousness being imputed to our account through faith, but in addition to God saving us from himself, God also saves us from our fellow man who would seek to devour us. Jesus said, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. That when someone comes into allegiance with Christ, just like Gibeon did with Joshua, those who used to be their friends, like the five kings of the Amorites, all of a sudden become their foes. Gibeon gains an ally that they previously did not have, namely Joshua and Israel. But in gaining Joshua and Israel as an ally, notice 
that the immediate consequence is that all their previous allies become their enemies. And so it is when a man follows after Christ. That in taking Christ as our friend, we declare war against the world. When Christ becomes your friend, the world becomes your enemy. Those who used to have some kind of relationship, affiliation, even genuine or what appeared to be genuine affection, devotion, and commitment towards you will turn on you in a moment. Those who used to be your friends will become your enemies. And Jesus promises this. He says, do not be deceived. A student is not above his teacher, nor the slave above his master. If they hated me, they will hate you on account of me. The five Amorite kings hated Gibeon on account of Joshua. And so too, the kings of this earth, those who are not in allegiance to Christ, will hate you on account of Jesus. And they will attempt to devour you. And sadly, to go one step further, there are often times where these enemies may even claim the name of Christ themselves. Some of our fiercest enemies might not just be the Ugandan, not Ugandan, Ukrainian rainbow flag pronouns in the profile, you know, progressive, who clearly hates God and is happy to admit it. But sometimes the enemy, for those who follow after Christ fully, with full devotion to his word, seeking to be obedient in every commandment, in every realm of Christ, uh, uh, in every realm of life, all of Christ for all of life, sometimes our fiercest opponents will be fellow Christians. In some cases, they are Christians in name only, not truly born again, a false profession claiming to be Christians, but actually pagan themselves. But in other cases, and these being the most tragic of all, in other cases, we will have, at least momentarily, fierce opponents who actually are born-again Christians, but are compromised. They are born again. They're not just Christian in name only. They've been regenerate. They truly are brothers and sisters in Christ in the realest sense we will spend eternity with them in heaven forever in perfect reconciliation and fellowship. But for a time here on earth, because of the deceitfulness of sin, which even Christians at times can fall prey to, a genuine brother and sister in Christ can become one of our fiercest opponents. We could have been allied together just, just a week ago, storming the gates of hell, arms linked, in full unison, in covenant with one another. That we were united in agreeing this idol, this abomination is against the word of God. And we need to do battle against it. And so we storm those gates of hell, arm in arm, hand in hand. And then we pivot and say, also this one. And it's at that point that they say, but wait, I, lo I love that one. I was down to take out wokeness in 2020 but you want to take out feminism in 2023? No. Our allegiance doesn't go that far. No, you're actually evil. You're bad. You're sinister. This is extra biblical. You've gone beyond the realms that you're a legalist. 
I'm going to destroy you. I'll pick less fights with rainbow flying homo jihad than I'm going to pick with you over the next few months. And this is a very real, very real reality that all of us will undergo. Because it's not just, what I'm saying is this, it's not just one moment in the Christian life, namely the moment of conversion. Brothers and sisters, hear me. And this is the main point, and we'll land the plane. The Christian life is not just an initial moment of conversion where all of a sudden we gain Christ as our ally and then our previous unregenerate allies now become our foes. No, the Christian life, in the same way that it's not just initial repentance for sin, but it is a life of ongoing repentance, day by day we're repenting of more and more things that we previously were not even aware of, that, that sanctification is not just a moment like justification, but it's an ongoing lifelong process, so too, so too is the falling out of friendships. If you will follow Christ, and not just in conversion, not just initially, not just for a day, but if your goal is by His grace and His grace alone, every day to come into more and more obedience to His commands, and to apply obedience to not some, but all the commandments of Christ, and to apply that obedience in every single sphere of the cosmos, not just your private home, but even in the public sphere of politics. If you're going to obey not some, but all of Christ's commandments and not just apply that obedience in some areas, but every realm of life, then progressively, because no one does this in an instant, this is a process of growing, process of sanctification, process of growing in obedience, growing in repentance, growing in wisdom, growing in maturity. And as we go further down this path, you'll look to your left, you'll look to your right, and you will find that you have less and less company along the road. The people who are with you in one leg of the journey are with you no longer. And some of them will just be content to stop and say, I've arrived. This is enough. And they'll leave you alone. Others, though, may choose not only to not continue with you in the path of sanctification and faithfulness to God's word, but they might actually turn against you. Israel always killed the prophets. I've said it many times. For those of you who are new, I'll say it again. The prophets were not killed in Israel for being right. Prophets were killed for being first. There are many things that we can say today that everyone would agree with. And maybe not everyone, but a large amount of people. Like when we say, hey, critical race theory is probably not a good idea. In fact, I think it might be antithetical to the teachings of Scripture. Well, in August 2023, you'll have a lot of evangelicals, sadly not all, but a lot of evangelicals, I'd argue approximately half, say, you're right. We agree. However, if you had said that in 2017 and 18 and 19, you would have the full weight of all of evangelicalism seeking to destroy you. Now notice, your answer has not changed. The substance of the argument has not altered in one iota. The only thing that's changed in this scenario that I'm positing is the timing. The lion's share of resistance will always be most felt by those who are first. The prophets in Israel were killed by their own people. And they were killed not for being right, 
because the message and substance of what they said was inscripturated and written down in scrolls and later generations of Israelites, Jesus even says himself, would build tombs and monuments honoring those prophets saying, we agree with Jeremiah. Everything he said, we agree with Isaiah. Everything he said, I'm a huge Ezekiel fan. Love that chapter, love that verse. It's not the substance of the prophets that caused them to be put to death. Because that same message, that same substance would be universally agreed with at a later time. It's not just the nature of the argument that garnishes opposition, but it's the timing of the argument. It's always those who speak out first, those who speak out early. But notice, brothers and sisters, the only reason why the Overton window ever shifts, the only reason why public discourse ever alters and changes is because someone said the emperor has no clothes and I'm not going to wait for everyone to agree to say it all together at the same time. I'll say it now. Everyone's pretending, but I'll say it now. He's naked. I know it. You know it. And I'm going to say it. And that guy might get shot. But that guy opens the door for five more guys after him to say it. They open the door for then 50 people to say it. And then eventually the emperor is hauled off for being the fool that he is and the people gain a victory. This is always the way that it works. This is the, the repetitive pattern throughout all of human history, all of biblical history, all of the prophets' history in the Old Testament. And Jesus is the premier example. He goes back to Jerusalem when his disciples urge him not to say, that's, the, that's the, the chief place of persecution. And Jesus says, yeah, I know. That's why I'm going. Can a prophet ever die out of Jerusalem? If you're a prophet, you're gonna die. Who's gonna kill you? Israel. Where are they gonna kill you? In the capital city. That's where they kill prophets. I've gotta go to Jerusalem. It's, it's, it's unheard of for a prophet to be put to death anywhere else. So too, you could say today, when it comes to persecution, is there any prophet that hasn't been killed by evangelicals? A prophet must also always be put to death by evangelicals. Right? With, with, with friends like these, who needs foes? That's story oldest time. But the point is this. If Christ be for us, who can be against us? Athanasius once said, it is Athanasius against the world. And the world is against Athanasius. But in his case, and as it is with ours, brothers and sisters, it still actually was not a fair fight. Because Athanasius plus God is superior, infinitely so, to the entire world. Better to be you and Jesus and nobody else against the whole world than to unite with the whole world against the triune God and the truth of his word. Let God be true and every man a liar. His word does not change based off of what time it is, based off what generation it is, based off of culture or time or place. God's word is eternal, immutable, and inerrant. He has set up patterns for living in his world. They are good and we shall not be embarrassed by them. And someone always has to be first. They don't kill the prophets for being right because later on, the rightness of the prophet's message is received by the majority. And the people as a whole are blessed because of it. But the initial prophet is killed not for being right, but for being first. But nothing changes in this world if someone's not willing to be first. And so 
I charge you, brothers and sisters and members of Covenant Bible Church, be willing. We're not all going to do it in the same way. We haven't all been given the same station in life, the same vocation, the same influence, the same platform. That's fine. But in your little neck of the woods, in whatever vocation, whatever influence the Lord and his providence has chosen to assign to you, be courageous. Speak the truth. Don't wait for someone else to push back against clown world to make all of a sudden a biblical narrative popular and acceptable and then run out in front of the conservative parade and pretend as though you engineered it. Don't be a hypocrite. Be willing to say the truth in season and out of season. John Bunyan a late great Baptist Puritan in Pilgrim's Progress, he describes a man, Mr. Byens. And Mr. Byens is a man who says, I love to walk with religion in times when she is wearing her glass slippers and dressed in royal robes. But when religion is impoverished and embarrassed, well, why go upstream? Why not just sit on the side and wait for the currents to change? And when it becomes acceptable again, when it becomes popular again, when religion is once again seemed as virtuous by the public as a whole, then once again, I will be pleased and honored to walk hand in hand with religion in the streets when she again is gowned in majesty and splendor. And Christian says to Mr. Baez, he said, you're, you're not a follower of Jesus, essentially. I'm paraphrasing. That's not what a follower of Jesus does. He's not a buy-ins kind of person. He's not a fair-weathered fan. The fair-weathered fan is the one that Jesus says on that final day, I will say of you, you are ashamed of me. I am ashamed of you. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. One of the tests, if you're wanting to grow, not just encourage, but grow in assurance of salvation, that you truly have been born again, that Christ really is on your side, just like Joshua came to the protection and defense of Gibeon. If you want to know, do I belong to Christ? Do I have that covenant with him? Do I have his full assurance? Do I have his full affection? Do I have all of his salvation and all the benefits of his covenant that he promises to provide? Am I his elect? Am I included in his mercy? What are the ways to know? To be powerfully assured that you indeed are in covenant with Christ and he is in covenant with you, that you belong to him, is to not be a fair-weathered friend, to not be ashamed of him, when many others, even those who bear his name, are ashamed. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Help us to trust in you, to bring you honor and glory, to be shrewd and wise as serpents, to be careful not to be jerks, but also to be courageous and brave and as bold as lions, to not have to wait for the majority to say, okay, now we're finally ready to be faithful to God's word. Help us to be willing to be faithful, even if it means being faithful alone. We pray this for your glory and our good and the good of our children and future generations that might know you. May we would be used by you in your grace to pave the way for them. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.